Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. First Pokemon memory. Bro. Fucking Pokemon Blue. Game Boy. We're talking about Pokemon trading cards. I fucking remember the cartoon. Chances are you know Steven Bruner, a.k.a. Thundercat, as a god-tier bassist, producer, recording artist, and multiple Grammy winner. You might have heard him in a previous season of this show talking about his work with Kendrick Lamar on Tupimbo Butterfly. We got the cartoon, the uh, card game, and fucking Pokemon Blue and Red all at the same time. It was like, it, it took over everything. But Thundercat is also a big fan of Japanese pop culture. And while his passions in that area are pretty wide-ranging, a lot of it goes back to Pokemon. In the mid-90s, he and his friends were into collecting Marvel Masterpieces trading cards, American superheroes from the Marvel Universe. And then all of that changed overnight. To be honest with you, Pokemon is what knocked Marvel out of the fucking ballpark. So we, everybody shows up one day with uh, Pokemon cards, but it was when Red and Blue came out on Game Boy. And my first Pokemon was Squirtle, bro. That was me first Pokemon. So it's Squirtle gang till I die. And I was destined to Bruce Lee be like water, Squirtle. Bruce Lee would have definitely been Squirtle Gang. One of the great things about being a god-tier bassist who plays shows all over the world is that occasionally you get to go to Japan. I do exactly what you would think I do when I get to Japan. I start drooling immediately and then I just, like, I almost have, like, a handler when I get there, like, to try to, like, please make sure that he doesn't try to, <laughs> like, we're trying to preserve his life right now. We get to the Poke Center and... I lose my mind. I'm just like picking up everything on the shelves and they're like, dude, dude. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to figure out a way to get this back home. And so like literally like there's a room in, in, in my crib that's literally like covered in just like all the different Pokemon. I literally have like a five foot tall Snorlax plush like like it just genuinely just there's nowhere to you know somebody comes in and thinks it's a chair and then i like throw them across the room don't you touch my snorlax you know it's just but it's yeah it's it's that way it's that level thundercat became such a fan of pokemon that japan became a place of pilgrimage and his home a temple of pokemania every fan would probably do that if they could but for most fans, even that would not be enough. Total immersion is the goal, especially in a world that grows less cute by the day. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. 
Over the past four episodes of this season, we've been talking about how Pokemon, in many ways a uniquely and specifically Japanese creation, conquered America and then the rest of the planet. In this, our final episode, we're looking at the world Pokemon made. Almost 25 years after Pokemon arrived in America, Japanese pop culture and Japanese ideas about cuteness and play are a part of American life. And not just for the kids who were once Pokemon's sole target audience. In a universe of ever-expanding options, what is it that keeps people coming back to Pokemon in all its forms? Or to put it another way, what do we need that only Pokemon can give us? And where will it meet us next? Chapter 5. Evolution Over the course of the interviews for this season, we asked everyone the same important question. Who is your favorite Pokemon? Jigglypuff. Jigglypuff. Former Nintendo marketing executive Gail Tilden. I think Jigglypuff's awesome. If you're bored with what I'm saying and you fall asleep, I'm going to scribble on your face. <laughs> My favorite Pokemon is Charizard. Rapper Fat Tony. I am a red motherfucker. I love the color. I'm an Aries. I just gravitated towards the fire. That's my favorite Pokemon, hands down. Which one I answer as being my favorite will vary depending on when you ask me. Games journalist and expert Pokemon shiny hunter, Laura Dale. I'm gonna say Mimikyu is my favorite. Mimikyu. <laughs> That's not even, this is the worst. Mimikyu's whole deal is that they are a ghost abomination that is described as being so horrific to look at that you would lose your mind. And the way that this Pokemon has responded to that is it has made a makeshift Pikachu outfit out of little scraps of, of material. Um, what if I was as cute and adorable as that lovable mascot of the Pokemon series that everyone seems to love? And... That's very endearing, that's very sweet. I just want to protect you, you tiny, tiny little fake Pikachu. There is a Pokemon out there for everyone. Personally, I'm partial to Cubone, the little dinosaur-like Pokemon that wears the skull of its dead mother like a helmet and cries for her at night. Talk about drama. Talk about pathos. If somebody ever wins an Oscar for being in a Pokemon movie, it'll be for playing Cubone. He's tragic, and let me reiterate that he's wearing his mom's skull as a hat and crying. Crucially, Cubone is still cute. We all love the Pokemon we love because they're cute. But they're not only cute. There's a word in Japanese that better describes what they are, and that word is kawaii. It can be translated as cuteness, but as with so much in Japan, to give the English translation is to flatten out the meaning of the word. You heard Dr. Christine Yano earlier in this show. She's an anthropologist from the University of Hawaii who wrote a book about Hello Kitty, another pop culture icon from Japan who exemplifies kawaii in all its complexity. And the concept itself can include what an American would think of as its contradiction, so that there could be an ugly, a warped kawaii, as well as a straight-ahead, you know, cuteness. The word kawaii has been used forever, but the kawaii aesthetic goes back to the 70s when Japanese schoolchildren, mostly girls, adopted a new style of handwriting, bubbly and feminine and adorned with hearts and even smiley faces. Soon, deliberate childishness became a trend in fashion, spoken language, and eventually consumer products. 
A Japanese company called Sanrio began producing stationery and other merchandise adorned with the images of cute characters, and in 1975, they introduced a future international icon, Hello Kitty. She first appeared on a vinyl coin purse and has since become the face of a multi-billion dollar retail empire. Hello Kitty is, as it happens, the second biggest entertainment franchise in the world after Pokemon. Hello Kitty and her friends, shout out to my favorite Bats Maru, the surly penguin, have gone everywhere there is to go. For one of the anniversaries after the end of World War II, Sanrio put out a figure of Hello Kitty as a kamikaze pilot. And I'm, I'm going, would we do that in the U.S.? You know, and for me, it's a sense of astonishment because I'm coming with from an American frame. And for, for apparently, the, the makers in Japan, it was like, not a big deal. So this kind of cuteness can extend way beyond what at least an American might expect. Um, and I've seen other Hello Kitties in which she's depicted with a kind of bloody hands, bloody mouth, and uh, etc. And it's not considered revolting. Or maybe there is supposed to be some revoltingness to it, but that doesn't detract from the multi-layered cuteness of it all. There are layers to kawaii. It contains multitudes. It's an ontological tangle of anthropomorphism and irony and innocence and excess. Kawaii means Hello Kitty, but it also includes deliberately creepy cute characters like Udon Nu, the mascot of Kagawa Prefecture, Japan's Udon Noodle capital. He's a humanoid with an exposed cranium full of noodles that look like brain matter, or maybe the other way around. There are Kawaii construction barriers designed to look like cute characters, including Hello Kitty, and to lower pedestrians' stress levels. Kawaii means characters like Agretsuko, a red panda with an office job and serious anger issues, and Gudetama, the anthropomorphized egg who may be suffering from clinical depression. Those last two are good examples of the way in which Kawaii's expansive definition of cuteness takes in human traits, traits that Westerners wouldn't necessarily think of as cute. And that's one of the ways in which Pokemon epitomizes the whole concept. Snorlax is cute because he's sleepy. Gengar is cute because he's an evil ghost. Slowbro is cute because he's lazy. Kawaii is a kaleidoscopic worldview that sees color and life and cuteness in all it surveys. Theorists have said that there is an evolutionary basis for cuteness and that cuteness draws upon what might be called the maternal impulse, the impulse to, to care, right? The impulse to nurture, the impulse to protect. So that when you see a very cute thing, you're supposed to go, oh, <laughs> with it kind of drawing down and then and drawing inward, right? But at the same time, I think the Japanese part of this is that it can go on and on and on. Whereas we see limits in particular age groups in which this might be appropriate, in Japan, it extends. In an America that preferred to see cuteness in Bambi-like two dimensions, the idea of kawaii might once have been hard to fathom. But thanks to Pokemon and other imported Japanese pop culture products, that notion of cuteness is increasingly a part of America's pop culture as well. This season of the show started with a list of the highest-grossing entertainment franchises. Pokemon, with over $100 billion in lifetime global revenue since the late 90s, was number one, beating out so many other American institutions. Marvel superheroes, Batman, even Mickey Mouse. The only two countries whose cultural products are represented in the top nine, by the way, are Japan and the U.S., 
with Harry Potter holding it down for England at number 10. We thought we would explore how Pikachu got to number one and whether that means America's influence in the world is fading. But the more we looked at the story of Pokemon and the story of Pokemon in America, the more it seemed like the latest chapter in a long history of cyclical cultural exchange between Japan and the West, by which these two countries gradually developed a shared subconscious. In the 1850s, after over 200 years of isolation, Japan opened its borders to the outside world. And the entire Industrial Revolution, a few hundred years of advancement, hit the country more or less all at once. Clock time, the railroad, the telegraph. It was like what would happen if modern-day America suddenly acquired alien technology scavenged from crashed UFOs. That metaphor comes from an essay by the science fiction writer William Gibson. Gibson suggested that Japan, as a country, has been dropkicked down the timeline by a string of traumatic, dislocating, and transformative encounters with modernity. First, Japan industrializes and remakes its economy in the image of Europe and the West. The country becomes an imperial power, eventually fighting and then losing a world war. After the war came the occupation. America, now focused on halting the spread of communism, helps rebuild Japan as a capitalist powerhouse, particularly when it comes to technology. And all this happens in, like, less than a century. From the end of feudalism in the 1870s to the founding of Casio and Sony right after the war in 1946. Gibson writes, quote, The result of this stupendous triple whammy, catastrophic industrialization, the war, the American occupation, is the Japan that delights, disturbs, and fascinates us today. A mirror world, an alien planet we can actually do business with. A future. Gibson wrote this in 2001 in an essay that introduces us to a then-specifically Japanese character he calls the Mobile Girl. Quote, That ubiquitous feature of contemporary Tokyo street life, a schoolgirl busily, constantly messaging on her mobile phone, which she never uses for voice communication if she can avoid it, unquote. At the time, especially if you were American, text messaging was a feature your cell phone came with that you'd probably never used. Gibson identified the mobile girl as a symptom of a, quote, techno-cultural suppleness born of Japan's unique relationship with modernity. And it's really a testament that this futurist, so tuned in with virtual worlds, got to Japan and was shocked, so shocked by what he saw. Tokyo-based writer and translator Matt Alt. It really shows you how far ahead of the curve Japan was. Because when you read that essay, what he's talking about are every teenage girl is looking down at her cell phone and text messaging on it. Like, now if you made that observation, people would be like, yeah, so? We know every, like, 13-year-old girl and boy and everybody else is going to be on their cell phones texting nonstop. Japan was the first to kind of experience that. And so Gibson, you know, saw that stuff as incredibly futuristic, and he was right, because it became all of our futures. I think the, how quickly that became our future would have shocked even him. As Alt points out, Gibson was not the only smart Western thinker who saw Japan at the turn of the 21st century, around the time Pokemon emerged, and failed to predict how Japanese the West's pop culture would become in the ensuing years. 
1999, toward the end of an article about Hello Kitty's parent company Sanrio and the age-defying, all-encompassing aesthetic of cuteness in Japan, the renowned science journalist Mary Roach wrote, quote, The further you get from elementary school, I suspect, the heavier the American resistance will be to cute in its purest incarnation. It's hard to imagine U.S. teenagers deeming it cool to own a Thunder Bunny cell phone case or a boogie board graced by Bats Maru's visage, and harder still to picture middle managers in Hello Kitty dress socks. And Mary Roach is a very insightful person. She missed this. She missed this. Like, within a couple years, suddenly, like, America's the most kawaii, you know, like, we're obsessed with, with Hello Kitty, too. Lisa Loeb is, like, making an entire album dedicated Hello Kitty. Now, like, Lady Gaga is wearing, like, Hello Kitty. It's like, you know, women are wearing pussy hats to march on, you know, Washington. This kind of kawaii culture has really inflected ours. In the course of this show, we've talked about the xenophobic fear of Pokemon, which some people saw as an expression of foreign power. Japan colonizing the American mind by preying on children. It's an idea born out of older ideas. Cold War stuff about American pop culture as a vehicle by which American ideals and ideology propagate all over the world. That mindset perceived Japanese pop culture in the same way, as insidious and subversive. But a quarter century or so after Pokemon debuted in America, the supposed wrestling match between us and them looks more like a feedback loop, in which America, after the war, creates a Japan it can do business with, and then Japan sells us what we want before we know we want it. The paradigmatic example is the Walkman, a cassette tape player small enough to carry around with you, the first personal music player, basically, introduced in Japan by Sony in 1979. It didn't solve a problem so much as create a need that few people could have articulated before it existed. It went on to redefine our relationship with music and the world in which we listen to it. It created the way we live now, perpetually curating a personal soundtrack for the spaces we move through. The Walkman was a hit in Japan, and before long it was ubiquitous in America as well. And of course, the same thing would happen with Pokemon, a Trojan electromouse by which Kawaii has woven itself into American pop culture. And yet, we keep being surprised when this happens. It's really interesting that you had these people going over to Japan and making really insightful observations and yet missing the fact that this isn't some unique Japanese phenomenon. It's just happened in Japan a little bit faster because they got to the future economically, societally, and you know, politically, demographically in ways that we're just starting to grapple with now. They got older faster. They got out of manufacturing you know, earlier. They experienced a kind of Lehman shock-esque crash two decades before us. So in a certain sense, they had a huge leg up on creating survival tools to help navigate the kind of hellish late capitalist landscape that we're all in right now. Up next, the hellish late capitalist landscape that we're all in right now, and why Baby Yoda will follow you until you're dead. Community Day is a holiday for Pokemon Go players, except it happens every month. The Pokemon company bumps up your odds of catching some rare Pokemon and releases special bonuses and other incentives designed to bring Pokemon catchers out into the streets. Like, there is a crowd of Geodes. Oh my god, I forgot you had the shields. I forgot the shields existed. On a recent Saturday, we were at the Beverly Connection, a semi-open-air big box center on La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles. And so were many, many Pokemon Go enthusiasts from all over the L.A. area. 
Pokemon hunters are easy to spot in the wild. Eyes trained on their phones, wandering the area as if hunting for mushrooms or Wi-Fi bars, and pausing every so often to do that telltale circular wrist motion that puts a curve in your Pokeball throw. It's like going to a beach where everybody's got a metal detector. Some of them were parents who brought their kids with them, like Ricky Ramos, who is here with his son Enrique and his daughter Anna. Their whole family loves Pokemon Go. He downloaded it, and little by little, we started picking back up into it. Yeah. Oh, hi, that's cool. What just happened? She's fun to stop, but she got a whole bunch of gifts from it, so yeah. Like little things like that. It's, that's, that's what makes it all worth it, you know? But most of the people stalking Alolan Geodudes through the outdoor areas of the Beverly Connection were adults. Like Abraham and Jessica, who were hanging out together with no children in sight. What do you do when you're not catching Pokemon? Work. Working. I'm even catching Pokemon at work. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes play while I'm driving, which is not very smart. So. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> if I were going to say I had a favorite, I think it would still be Pikachu. Um, which one is you it? know, his little Pika Pika. This is Kathleen, who was technically a parent with a kid, except she'd come with her adult daughter. We gently asked her if she could tell us her age. Or we asked if we could ask. I will be 65 in like four months. Yep, I just got my Medicare card in the mail. <laughs> I'm officially old. But I don't feel old. So, And, you know, that's one of the things about this game is like, you know, it helps me feel younger. If you've listened to this show, you already know that it was not ever thus. In the late 90s, when Pokemon first became a nationwide craze in America, it brought endless delight to children and mostly left adults confused, concerned, or annoyed. These days, Pokemon fandom is a much bigger tent. And like Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars before them, the Pokemon brand has had to evolve, creating new versions of the Pokemon experience in order to meet fans where they are, age-wise and otherwise. So much present-day entertainment wrestles with this exact issue. In a world where there's no stigma about being an adult who's still into superheroes or Jedi Knights or Pokemon, how do you tell one story that acknowledges your more mature fans without losing the kids? The first live-action Pokemon movie, released in 2019, is almost a dramatization of this exact question. Pokemon Detective Pikachu based on a 2018 game for the Nintendo 3DS system, is a blown-up, big-budget, CGI-enhanced vision of the Pokémon universe. It takes place in a world where humans and Pokémon live and work harmoniously together, but it's about a young guy who's put down his Pokéball and turned his back on the whole Pokémon experience, until he has to team up with a Pikachu voiced by Ryan Reynolds to solve the mystery of his father's death. In other words, it's a Pokemon movie seemingly aimed at people who might think of themselves as too old for a Pokemon movie. As a really big Cubone fan, I felt uh, very fan-served. I just want to say that. It's very strange. Cubones, as a species, their backstory is really strange, but they're so cute. This is Dan Hernandez, one of the screenwriters of Detective Pikachu. It just felt like making a Pokemon movie without Cubone was not correct on some level. And so I'm glad that that resonated with you. There have been Pokemon movies before, but they were basically feature-length episodes of the cartoon show, focused on characters like Ash Ketchum and Team Rocket, who 90s kids first met on television. 
Detective Pikachu is a deliberate departure. A genre piece, a murder mystery set in a noirish big city instead of the pastoral landscape depicted in the cartoons. We're so familiar here with Ash and his Pokemon and he wants to be a trainer and he's going to go battle in the Kanto region and it was none of those things by design. So it was a bit of uncharted territory, but it also allowed us the freedom to imagine different modes in which you could put these characters that so many people are familiar with, but maybe not in this exact way. Here's Dan's writing partner and fellow Detective Pikachu co-screenwriter, Benji Samet. It's important to us to sort of make the movie uh, for the entire community of Pokemon fans, not just uh, the older fans, not just the newer fans, but just try to make something uh, inclusive for all, all fans and then also try and make some new fans with the movie as well. Once they got the job, of course, their approach to the Pokemon mythos became more about practical concerns. I had a, a, you know, a bound Pokedex with all of the generations written out and I would be writing going, gosh, I wish there were, if only there were some kind of bioluminescent mushroom Pokemon and go, oh, there is, that's fantastic. So you just flip through your little Pokedex. And so it was like writing with one hand on the keyboard and one hand on the Pokedex. As professional Hollywood screenwriters, Dan and Benji are well aware that the exploitation of legacy IP is fast becoming the only game in town. At one point, for the purpose of a conversational hypothetical, Dan and Benji and I needed to come up with a retro pop cultural movie project that is not actually in the works, and we were unable to think of one that seemed implausible enough. Somebody's writing like Lincoln Logs the movie at this point. That's a, that's too good. I too good. <laughs> I we, we've been pitched a lot of IP that I I can't tell you, but Lincoln Logs would be on the good end of some of the calls we've had. Uh. <laughs> but as, again, big nerds with an office full of Dungeons & Dragons books, Akira merch, and Star Wars toys, they also understand what a movie born from kid stuff can do for an adult audience when it's done right. I felt that way the first time Hugh Jackman turned around in the first X-Men movie as Wolverine. I just remember sitting in the theater and just thinking to myself, I might have even said it aloud, like a real young nerd, <laughs> I think. I think I said something effective. They did it. They did it. <laughs> and I remember that feeling so profoundly, how exciting it was and how energizing it was. And I was a teenager, a young teenager at that time. But I think you can, there's no age limit on that feeling. And I don't, you know, that's like, how many times can we see Batman's parents get killed? Those sorts of criticisms. But the reason that we do see that over and over again is because there's something quite powerful in that story. And I think that in the case of Pokemon, it really is about like, what if my dog were my best friend and could shoot fireballs out of its mouth? How awesome would that be? As long as there is capitalism, we will never stop being presented with new opportunities to watch Bruce Wayne and his parents make a wrong turn down Crime Alley. As consumers of fiction living in 21st century America, we are, more than ever, kind of brain-captured from birth by one of a few ubiquitous entertainment brands. And those brands are getting better and better at following us into adulthood, serving up quasi-mature reimaginings of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Cruella DeVille to ensure that we never have to venture outside a comfort zone established when we were too young to cross the street alone, playing to both our innocence and our cynicism simultaneously catering to our inner children while making us feel better about the fact that our inner children are such easy marks. 
Pokemon is no exception. At the end of the day, it's no less cold in calculating a money-making enterprise than anything else on that biggest franchise's list. It has captured us, and will continue finding ways to keep us inside the Pokeball forever. But to the extent that there's a defining difference between Pokemon and, say, an American superhero franchise that reheats the same origin story two or three times per decade, it's that Pokemon isn't a violent power fantasy about beating up criminals. It shares DNA with the films of Hayao Miyazaki, like My Neighbor Totoro. It's selling you something, but what it's selling, besides Pokemon merchandise anyway, is the strangeness and wonder of the world outside your window. Probably my favorite scene in the movie is when they find the Bulbasaur in the forest. There's sort of an inscrutable quality to nature and to animals and our relationship to the natural world. And it felt on some level like Pokemon really is trying to be about that. Of course, it's about the cute, amazing Monst, you know, creatures and collecting them and, you know, obviously they're not afraid to, to make a buck off it. But I think that the power of it is this idea that you can have an intimate relationship with a part of the natural world where not only is it your friend, but it's your partner. Dan's referring to a scene toward the end of the movie where, spoiler alert, Pikachu has been gravely injured in battle and almost dies until Tim, his human companion, encounters a Bulbasaur and manages to establish an emotional connection with it through intense eye contact. It is about the world in some way, um, the natural world, and was trying to articulate that feeling, that idea of we've all grown up, many people, you know, so many people have grown up with this, like, there it is, there's a Bulbasaur in this stream, and we don't know what Bulbasaur wants, and we don't know what it means, but we're having this moment of interaction, and we're having this exchange of some numinous feeling and I, 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 I you know maybe that this is me being like quasi-religious about it but I, I I think it's important and I think that that's the power of Pokemon During the six years Satoshi Tajiri spent developing Pocket Monsters the Nintendo game that would ultimately spawn the whole Pokemon universe one of his advisors was the legendary game designer Shigeru Miyamoto, creator of, among other things, the Mario franchise. Years later in an interview, Miyamoto remembered a conversation he and Tajiri had toward the end of that long development process, in which Tajiri said, quote, I want this game to surpass Mario. I don't mean in terms of novelty, of being new or old. I want to create a game with universal appeal, something that will stand the tests of time and be remembered in history. That conversation Miyamoto is describing took place a little more than 25 years ago. And with all due respect to the Mario brothers, Mario Mario and his brother Luigi Mario, yes, those are their names, it's canon, you can look it up, Tajiri's creation has done what he dreamed it would. Pokemon is bigger than Mario. It's bigger than Japan. It's bigger than the medium of video games. The more I think about Pokemon, the harder it is for me to describe precisely what it is. We use words like entertainment franchise or brand or product line, but these feel like small, old words, inadequate to describe something this modern, this fluid, something that takes whatever form the moment requires. At the beginning of this show, Thundercat quotes Bruce Lee, 
who famously said people should be like water. Quote, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. Wherever you put Pokemon, video games, television, movies, all over the hull of a commercial airliner, or at the center of an augmented reality game like the worldwide hit Pokemon Go, it becomes that thing. I would argue that yes, Pokemon is forever. Video games journalist Greg Miller. The key to Pokemon's success and why it's still here is the fact that it, it does still iterate. It does still change with the times. It does follow you to where you want it to be. Pokemon's going to be whatever the audience wants it to be and whatever Pokemon thinks it should be. We asked everyone a version of the same questions Greg is answering. Why has Pokemon endured and will it be able to keep going? I think it hit that sweet spot. Anthropologist and editor of the book Pikachu's Global Adventure, Joe Tobin. Pokemon managed to be good enough for like 10 purposes. For, you know, for little girls' interests, for boys wanting to, to feel tough while they're fighting, to people a little older getting into this idea of a collection, to be cute enough to be a plush toy. Rapper and Pokemon fan, Fat Tony. It has touched every part of entertainment, from card games to toys to video games to movies to a TV show. It's like when, when you have that much coverage and you have all those things become hits, I think it's hard to be phased out. Here I am 20 years later, if I open up a pack of cards, it feels just like me being 11 years old with my friends again. Pokemon superfan Tim Geddes. I would have never thought that Pokemon would come back as strong as ever, but it did. It became the sensation where people were going back to the original dream that the creators of Pokemon had, which was this communal aspect of collaboration and, and being with people. So Pokemon's supposed to be in like a real world. Pokemon card collector and YouTuber Danny Sanchez. And I think as even as an adult, it's, you know, sometimes you have to take life really, really seriously. And what Pokemon has done is provided an outlet for people to relax, be goofy, you know, collect something, play something that's not as serious and is still fun, enjoyable, has great art. Tokyo-based writer and translator Matt Alt. Pokemon is is a very gentle, meditative sort of experience, where you're kind of over you're, you're attempting to fuse that meditative experience with the real world. You know, you, we're we're using it as a, as a as a as a crutch because we can't go into the real world because we're all stuck indoors because of lockdowns and things like that. Pokemon was a sort of early window into a future where we would be escaping into virtual imaginary worlds, not because they were, you know, not because they're bad for us, but because they're tools for coping with bad situations in society as, as a whole. Um, they're, they're essentially survival tools. And having a tool for survival is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, I, I think the fact that we had Pokemon, uh, you know, and had these meditative experiences during what was a very tumultuous, difficult era of, of pandemic enriched our lives or at least made them a little bit more bearable. And, you know, that's something I think that we should all be kind of thankful for. When Satoshi Tajiri created the game that spawned the Pokemon universe, he may have been dreaming of video game greatness, but his immediate goal was simple. He'd grown up hunting bugs and never forgot what it was like to experience the natural world. He knew most Japanese children would never experience nature in that same way. So he created a garden inside a Game Boy, 
a synthetic experience that mimicked the act of bug collecting, but also the joy of it, the sense of adventure and surprise. What Tajiri couldn't have realized was how universal the appeal of that synthetic experience would turn out to be, or how much the technology by which Pokemon delivered that experience would evolve, how immersive it would become, or how much modern life, not only in Japan, but around the world, would conspire to make us all long for a simple moment of spiritual connection with a Bulbasaur. I guess this is the other explanation, the dark explanation, for why Pokemon isn't going anywhere. Because as the real world keeps getting more, what's the right word here, fucking terrifying, the appeal of something like Pokemon is only going to grow. Because the core idea behind Pokemon is as optimistic as it is simple. There's a magical world, and it's not in space or in the past or on some mysterious island. It's right here, all around us. This was what Satoshi Tajiri was trying to give us all those years ago. The feeling that there were still wonders to discover. I was too old for Pokemon when it first blew up. But in the summer of 2016, when Pokemon Go came out, I had a short-lived job on the Paramount Studios lot in Hollywood, California, and I also had a six-year-old kid. And sometimes when it was slow, I'd bring the kid to work with me, and in the afternoon, we'd walk around the lot, catching e-cans and jigglypuffs on the fake New York street set. That's my Pokemon story. Chasing Pokemon past the fake brownstones where they shot breakfast at Tiffany's and the Black Eyed Peas video for Rock That Body. And then eventually we stopped going on poke walks. And then I looked up and it was 2022 on the other side of a pandemic and some hard years for both of us. And somehow I had a teenage 12 year old. We're a lot alike and I remember 12. Embarrassment is a second skin. The curse of self-consciousness in full effect. Except I was never as smart as they are or as aware of the cruelty and unfairness of the world. It was a Saturday and we were an hour early for a haircut appointment in Echo Park, so I made them go on a walk with me around the man-made lake down the street. We used to come here a lot. There's a playground here that they're now too big for, but they do a perfunctory circuit of the rides for old time's sake. They're too old for a lot of the things that used to make them happy, but because they're so self-aware, they also feel that loss acutely. By now, all the actual nature Echo Park Lake has to offer is old news. The turtles pretending to be lily pads, the burly geese. The kid wanted no part of it today. This walk was a forced march. But then I pulled out my phone and pulled up Pokemon Go. And suddenly, we were on a mission. We had a purpose. It had been a while since we'd been here. They have water-type Pokemon by the lake that we'd never seen before. We cut zigzag paths across the grass, filling holes in the old Pokedex. The hour died a peaceful death, and we went to the barbershop. I'm not going to act like anybody rediscovered their capacity for childlike wonder that afternoon. The kid was happy because I'd handed them my phone. That always works. But when we needed Pokemon, it was there. To speed up the time and slow it down so it felt like an experience. To tell us something about our surroundings that was comforting and beautiful, even if it wasn't necessarily true. That wherever we look under rocks and in the water, there are friends we haven't met yet. That the hidden world is softer and kinder and cuter than the one we know, 
And your new friends might look weird, but they're funny, strong, and brave, and they want to help you. That the world is alive, and it can't wait for you to come and find it. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Production help from Tyler Hill. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Theme music and studio direction by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.